This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. The title of our book today is No Place for a Lady, and our author is Taya Rosenbaum. Taya, thank you for joining me from Florida today. Thank you for having me. You have a very illustrious and interesting history. You have been a producer for ARD German Television in the United States. Uh, You did a uh, stint as a reporter in Vietnam. Tell us the background of your story and why you felt inspired to tell your story of Vietnam and also your life story. Um, Well, my life history didn't start that great. You know, I grew up... um as a very young child, of course, in World War II in Berlin, and chased by the Russians. And then um, I was abused, and I think that didn't help uh, my self-esteem. And all through my teen years, I felt I was ugly, stupid. And, you know, as they have a saying in Berlin, dumb made, dumb born, and never learned anything further. And that's how I felt. But suddenly, I don't know, suddenly I decided I will make something out of myself. And I said, you know, and I have to do it, and I want to be first in what I do as a girl, as a woman. Uh, So I started out, I said, I've got to learn English properly. And I went to England as an au pair, and I went to school there. So I did that, and I came back, and I said, all right, now on to Paris, learning French. And my father said, "Uh uh-uh, girl, you're not, you're barely 21, not even 21st birthday yet, and you are staying, and I won't let you go anymore. So he found a job for me as a secretary with an American stockbroker, Oppenheimer and Company, and I said, well... Okay, I wait until I'm 21. I'm 21, and I started there. And there, you saw these ticker tapes go by, and all these numbers. And you know, sometimes they went up. And I got so interested in that. And I asked them. I said, "How do you become a stockbroker?" And they said, "Well, it's it's not that easy as it sounds. You know, and you have to really learn. You have to study." Um, so I went to Frankfurt University, took the courses there. And I did my exams, both of them, for the New York Stock Exchange. And I was 21 mm. when I did it, because you had to be. And I was, became Germany's first youngest female stockbroker. And that's how my career started. And I met my husband at AFN. He was a producer there, a soldier. And he interviewed me because of um, being the first youngest female stockbroker. Mm. Well, we finally married, and then we went to New York, and he started working for ABC News. And he came home one day, and he said, you know, the only way you get ahead in this business is, at that time, if you go to Vietnam. So I said, fine, absolutely, 
but I will go with you. I will not stay behind like most of the wives or go to Bangkok or Hong Kong or whatever. So I went with him to Saigon. And I tell you, pretty soon, the German correspondent for the German news agency came to me and he said, hey, couldn't you fill in for me on vacation? And that's how my career started as a journalist. Amazing story. And as an au pair in England, that must have been difficult. It wasn't that long after World War II. I mean, it was a few years. But how was that experience? And did it have any specific impact on your life? I... I think it opened my eyes how Germany was perceived after the war. Uh, you know, we never talked about World War II in school. Not at, um, at my age when I went, started going to school. We didn't have um, Nazi history in school. I had to go to special evening classes to find out what really happened. And you still weren't sure, really, what did they do? You know, what was the horrible thing they did? Mm. And I came to England, and they certainly let me know. And they let me know in no uncertain terms. And it was so that I was embarrassed to say I'm German. So I always, if somebody asked me, where are you from? And I said, I'm from the continent. And never said I'm from Germany. Oh, wow. My. It must have been a very challenging time. And then you arrive in Vietnam, and you're thrust into the, the role of a correspondent. How did that come about, and how quickly did you pick up on the aspects of being a correspondent? I think since I was watching everybody else, and everybody who had a name in American journalism certainly was in Vietnam at that time, and... Um, my first big story was a fire on the USS Forrestal. The bomb exploded um, and, you know, was released, and the whole it was an inferno. It was horrible. So the military decided they would only allow a pool producer in, and they used Johnny Apple from the New York Times. Well, he was the best pool producer I have ever met. I mean, uh, pool um, correspondent, excuse me, not producer. Mm -hmm. He came back and he told the rest of us the story of the fire on the USS Forrestal in such vivid terms that you felt you were there. And I think I learned a lot from that. I said, this is how you have to write. You have to experience a story and then write about it. And I decided... and. My other idol was George Plimpton, you know, who lived the story and right. wrote about it. And I said, that's what you got to do, Taylor. Live it and do it. So I went in and I took airborne training and became a parachutist. I took uh, some training with the CBs. So everything to be there, to be able to do something first. And I developed this writing, you know, in the I form that I experienced. I live it. And... So sometimes the horror of war, well, they become very personal then. And of course that affected me greatly, you know. you I mean, after a while you get nightmares. You see friends die, and that's not very pleasant. Having served as a correspondent for one term, you actually went back after leaving Vietnam, didn't you? Uh, yes. Well, by necessity, because my uh, husband was called back, 
they needed a bureau chief there, and uh, we had a young son, and, you know, he said, you better stay back in Chicago where we lived at the time. And then I said, nah, you know, I've got to go, and my cousin was there to take care of my little boy. So I went back, and that was actually the first time uh, the military, you know, an Air Force uh, PIO, press information officer, allowed me to to fly <clears throat> a jet with them. Before that, they never let me because he always said, now nah, I wouldn't allow my daughter to do it, so I will not let you do it. And I thought, you know, if I was a man, they would let me immediately. Mm. You know, let me fly that thing. <laughs> so I came back, and they let me go up with a, with a South Vietnamese pilot. And we went down the runway, and all of a sudden, very hot engine air came out on the the little ducts you have, like the air conditioning ducts you have on an airplane, they yes. have them on the bottom. And I'm yelling at him, at the pilot, this is hot air coming out, I'm burning, can you stop? And he said, no way to stop, I don't know, I don't know, he said, where that is coming from. And too late, too late, and we're growing up, and I said, oh my gosh, I'm, and he said, pull it away, push it, push it, pull it, whatever. That thing was melting. Oh, I my. couldn't. You know, I was I was burning. So then, but from one second to the other, it stopped. So then I said, "Can we please turn around?" He said, "No, I got to do my bombing mission." And he wasn't perturbed at all. So he said, "Everything is fine now." And <laughs> then he showed me um, formation flying. You know, and he said, "Look how close I can get, not more than an inch away from the other plane." Ooh. And I said, "Thank you. That is really very nice of you." But I tell you, I was so happy when we came back down and the PIO, he came out and he hugged me and said, thank God, thank God. I was already thinking, what will I tell Saigon what happened? I let this female uh, chorus burn and die in an airplane crash. I said, why? How could you tell that something was wrong? And he said, yeah, didn't you know you hit a tree when you were going up at the end oh. of the runway? I said, oh, I see. I tell you, that's just a little more excitement than I would enjoy on a personal level. But I must say, I'm sure you are happy to have survived to tell your story. <laughs> You've also had the honor of visiting with several presidents in the United States White House and uh, were part of the media corps that visited the White House on a regular basis. Take us behind the scenes and share that experience. Well, at that time, you know, we, we were back in Washington, and I was offered uh, the job as a senior producer at ARD German Television. So, And, and I, since I was used to doing a story and then, you know, live it and then uh, see what we can report, report it, I went to the White House every single day, um, as the White House correspondents did for briefings and developed context there. And that was during the, uh, first time it was during the Carter administration. I still knew a lot of people uh, with Ford, and I soon uh, I knew some people with Nixon. Um, but when after they left, you know, you had to start anew. So I did. And I think... They thought it was funny that this little German girl came in there every day, and they they sort of started to like me and and took me in, and they were actually very nice to me, and I got interviews with other people. 
didn't. Excellent. And this book is certainly unique. Uh, who do you think is going to enjoy the read? Well, I tell you, I think it's not only um, Vietnam veterans who are very close to my heart, because I, I'm still very mad how they were treated when they came back, um, but also I think women, I want to, and young, even young women, I want to tell them, you know, you can do it, you can really do it, just make up your mind, no matter what anybody else says, what they tell you. You're stupid. No, you can do it. Is there any other underlying message besides the fact of the inspiring trail of accomplishments that you have blazed that you want to share also? I don't think I have an underlying message. I think it's, um, to me, it was pass on um, my life uh, story because it's somebody said, well, Aren't you going to write this down? This is so interesting. you got to write it down, at least for your children. And then when I started it, I, I thought, wow. You know, when, when you see it in writing, you say, well, maybe there is a real message here. There is a message of perseverance. And I think that's the most important thing for me. you got to persevere. You never give up. Tell you that's an important message that many of us need to hear every single day and be reminded of that we can make it if we continue to persevere. In addition to clipping the tree, what was the most exciting or frightening moment that you had during your time in Vietnam? Oh, that was during the Tet Offensive. Um, you know, the Tet celebrations and the Chinese New Year or Vietnamese New Year in this case, the end of uh, January 1968. And I was just coming out of Quezon, and uh, we were running in a jeep and driving to this little village called Nam O. And because I had my, I had a uniform on, and I had my parachute wings on, so we came to this village, and they wouldn't let us in. They said, "No, you can't go any further." And there were trees in the street blocking the entrance, and. Then I saw uh, there were South Vietnamese uh, paratroopers. They were airborne, and I went up to them, and immediately they saw my wings and said, hey, what class you were in? And I said, 123, what class were you in? You know, and all of a sudden we said, airborne all the way. And they said, oh, you come with us. And they let us all go past. And we thought they were cleaning up. Mm-hmm. I saw North, North Vietnamese, which were captured, um, you know, the one guy still bleeding. They had put a bandage on him. And I'm looking to the right, and behind the building there, I see this guy in a North Vietnamese uniform with a B-40 rocket in his arm and slipping behind the house. And I'm yelling to a South Vietnamese who was very shortly following, you know, after him. I said, North Vietnamese, North Vietnamese. And he is just he couldn't hear me. There was noise or whatever. And a photographer from UPI, who was talking to me, explaining something to me with my camera. And he said, ah, Tia, who knows what you saw? And in that moment, bang, bang, you know, we were, I mean, they let up on us. I tell you, we hit the dirt so fast, rolling to the side of the 
street and I tried to hide behind a tree and then I tried to pull um, an old rubber tire over my head and I said, well, that, it's not going to help much, is it really? And I said, uh, how was it? <laughs> and uh, I was talking into my tape recorder and I said, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, the sun is shining and I can't die. It just can't happen. And we were pinned down until one of the South Vietnamese was brave enough to jump up and spray the, uh, the other side of the street. And then um, an American uh, was calling in air support. And that air support was darn close. It was, I mean, I would think maybe 50 yards away and... I'm I'm still um, blessed that he he didn't miss, you know. Mercy. Tell you, that story alone is worth the price of buying the book, just to see how it turned out and how you survived. Was there any challenging parts uh, to putting your book together? You have been a trailblazer and have lived a remarkable and exciting life and career. In spite of that, were there some personal challenges in telling your story? Yes. I have never, ever told anybody about uh, the sexual abuse at the hands of my grandfather when I was five years old. And it was enlightening for me just to put it down and just to talk about it. You know, it was very, very hard, but now it's there. People have come to me who have read the book and said, you know, I come from uh, an abuser family, or an, and with me it was my father, or, you know, people you never expected, and I think that is that was very challenging, but also I think maybe I help, I can help other people to come forward and say, and, and look, you've got to talk about it to get it out and over with. Taya, thank you for being courageous and sharing that part of your history as well. The title of the book, again, is No Place for a Lady, and our author is Taya Rosenbaum. Thank you, Taya, for joining me today. Where can our listeners get copies of your story? Oh, just about everywhere. Of course, uh, from the publisher, authorhouse.com uh, at the bookstore. You can get it at amazon.com. Uh, you can get it in the bookstores like Barnes & Noble. So please go out and get it. Yeah, My but... house on, on March 29th. <laughs> I will even sign it. That should be a great time of celebration. Taylor, you've also mentioned that they can connect with you on the web. Tell us about that, and what yes. are those? My, um, I'm on Facebook, uh, No Place for a Lady, and um, I have a website, which is noplaceforlady.com, and there's all sorts of information and links where you can get the book. There are pictures there, and the, you can download the first chapter, and I have a Twitter account, so please do follow me. We will try to do that. Listeners, you'll enjoy the book. It has lots of photos in it and commemorative information, along with the story of Taya Rosenbaum. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. No Place for a Lady by Taya Rosenbaum. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station? Here come old flat 
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book today is titled Gay Marriage Rights, Now a Global Reality, and our author is John Massaqua. John, welcome to the program. Mm -hmm. How's your day going so far? I'm all right. Good, good. This is a very uh, intensely researched book. It's not just an opinion piece. You've got 268 pages. Why did you feel uh, motivated to, to write this book on this particular subject? I write this book because of my compassionate love for mankind and my hate for oppression of any nation, combined with my passionate admiration for people who literally give up their life in the cause of Equal marriage right for gay people. That's basically why I wrote this book. And you, I'm sure, had a target audience. Who do you think is going to find this of interest? Uh, this book appealed to the global family of the world that now is the time that marks the significant milestone in, in the long struggle for gay marriage equality and the beginning of universal recognition that LGBT people are endowed with the same alienable right as human beings. So this book, is the target market really is the gay community. And in reading your book, uh, what, is the, what is the story, or what is the one thing you want readers to take away from your work? Uh, the most important thing I want readers to take away from this book as uh, the world, it is, it is no crime to love or be in love whosoever, uh, whosoever, be it same sex partner, man and woman, woman to woman, or man and a woman. It's nobody's business. You, as an individual, as an adult, you have the right to choose your gender. Uh, so that would be. Uh, so, so, therefore, it is. Human rights violation when people are beaten, killed, or killed because they are gay. Uh, it is as well human rights violation and government declare it illegal to be gay and allow people to do harm to gay and go unpunished. It is as well a human rights violation when lesbian, bisexual, and transgender women are subject to a so-called collective right. But you know what? The law is now on the side of gay for protection because gay rights are human rights, and human rights are gay rights, and has to be accepted globally. I'm sure there's uh, maybe a story or two in your book. I haven't read it completely. You've got 268 pages of uh, of content. Is there uh, is there a scene or something in your book that might be a, an interesting tale or an interesting story? Did you did you include any personal t uh, stories in here? Uh, what I need to highlight in this uh, interview is the true reality that gay people are born 
into the world equal like any other people and they belong to every society. They are of all ages, all race, all faith. And they are doctors, lawyers, engineers, farmers, athletes. These are people from all race of life. And whether you know it or whether you acknowledge it, they are our family, our friends and neighbors. And together we are all working to towards the development of our society. In addition to being an author, uh, what is your background? How were you able to contribute to the writing of the book? Uh, originally, uh, uh, I did conflict management and uh, uh, human rights activists in my country before. So uh, I hate oppression of any nature. So this is why I tried to write the book. And and what country was that? Africa, Australia. Ah, I see. Your book... We are being in war, and we see so many human rights violations, and this is my background. And I have been working on as a coordinator for a local program on conflict management. Excellent. And you're in the United. You are in the United States now. I'm talking to you in the United uh, States. I'm in the United States. I'm doing what needs to be done in the United States. And to introduce this book, uh, maybe there are not many f- folks who know of you or know of your, your past. How would you introduce this book to somebody? Well, the, the book speaks for itself as Gay right now, a global reality. But to answer you directly, my book is introduced as a whistleblower to the world that the long uncropped minds in denial of gay barrier right is now a global reality and that homophobia and politicians have completely lost the battle. So you feel like the battle of uh, discrimination, as you see it, is is gone. There should not be any discrimination against anyone. There is no need to, to have any discrimination. We are all the same people, and we have the same right as human beings. So gay rights are human rights, and human rights are gay rights. So there is no point that we need to discriminate. Uh, you have used the term uh, marriage, I think it is. Yeah, gay marriage rights. Uh, is there a difference between gar- gay marriage rights and uh, just general legal rights? Well, in, uh, today there have been so so many discrepancies or violations against people. This is the only time in this area that we are seeing the recognition of gay marriage. This is why I'm repeating the gay marriage right. This is now the time of equality for everybody, be it homosexual or gay. We have the same right and we have the same marriage recognition as in this country and other parts of the world. Britain is trying to have the same recognition. France is trying to have the same recognition. Netherlands has long recognized that. So gay marriage right is now a global reality. You have a, a, a book that certainly has a pointed topic and and a focus. Why is your book different from others that are already in the marketplace dealing with this subject matter? Yeah. Uh, what makes my book different than others to begin with? The writing of the book is at the time when there is support for legal, legalized marriage or legality of gay marriage and I mean, of gay and Lesbian relationship more generally is near record high, coupled with the universal recognition of gay marriage rights by war political bodies 
like the European Parliament, the United Nations, and even the United States of America is about to recognize gay marriage as, uh, at federal level. And your 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 uh, your story, your 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 book, is it? It's contemporary in nature, is it, or when does it take place? <laughs> the story of human sexuality and civil rights issues are subject to daily occurrence and are taking place in every part of the world. I choose this setting out of compassion due to many violent gay all over the world face because of their gender identity. Is there any particular words or phrases that you'd use to describe your book or that story? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This book is best described as gender equality for gay community and awareness raising for decriminalization of violence against LGBT people. We are all the same people. Did you have any challenges in uh, researching this? I, as, I'm, as I noted in our introduction, you have a lot of research that has been put into the book. Was that part of the challenge of putting your book into a state of completion? Yeah, there, there were challenges, especially why I was writing the book, uh, uh, why Europe and America are celebrating and enjoying gay marriage rights. 75 countries will imprison you if you are gay. Only 53 countries have decriminalized law applied to sexuality. And only 26 countries recognize same-sex marriage, meaning the job is not done. In as much as there is now recognition, that there, but there are other parts of the world that that recognition have not yet reached there. So there is more work to be done. There is some question about children who are adopted into uh, gay or lesbian relationships. What is your ask, What do you feel is important about that particular uh, view? Uh, yeah, yes, there is the notion that children are brought up in an in, in an immoral environment during their adoption by gay and lesbian parents. There is also of uh, disagreement about what is moral and what is immoral. Yet people may think that raising children without religion is immoral, or drinking and gambling are immoral, but they have not been disqualified from adopting children. What we must agree is immoral. When children are left without homes, when there are many qualified parents to raise waiting to raise there, and that is what many gay and lesbian can do. John, this is what many would describe a provocative viewpoint. Uh, the title of the book, again, is Gay Marriage Rights, Now a Global Reality, and our author, John Massaqua. John, where do we get copies of your book, those that wish to read it? Oh, my, my, the copy of my book is on Amazon.com. Yeah, if you need it, anybody need it, they can go there and uh, purchase the book. Yeah, one last thing I like to mention. I want to highlight is the banner of lesbian and gay parents for adopting children by some states. Why there are evidence that gay parents who adopt children grow healthier, happier, and well adjustable like any heterosexual children. Parent. Thank you for sharing that information. Again, the book is titled "Gay Marriage Rights: Now a Global Reality." Now and our author, John Massaqua. John, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. 
Thank you so much. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, she'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Shadow of Her Smile, subtitled A Love Story, and our author is Ajit Hatising. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you, Jay. Delighted to be here. This type of book uh, can be difficult for some people to read. Tell me the background of it. What is it exactly about? Well, the book, uh, you might ask, why did I write the book, uh, which is really answers your other question as well. Yes. Um, I, in fact, didn't intend it to be a book when I started writing it. It was intended to be a memoir for, the, for friends and family, uh, just a record, if you will. And it was in the middle of um, a period of intense grief. So I did not really think about it as being a book. And uh, I started to record almost immediately after my late wife, Helen Armstrong's uh, sudden uh, unexpected death. Um, all my memories as they poured out and that began to take shape as a, if you will, a family record. And then a few years into my grief, I would say as, as many as three years into it, many friends and, uh, and uh, family and musicians asked me why I wasn't thinking about writing this in the form of a book. So it was not until three years passed that I took all my notes and my recollections, and which really fit very well into a, the format of the book as it is today. So that was really the motivation of converting my writings into a book. Describe for the listeners a little of your late wife's history and her talents. Well, Helen Armstrong was uh, a child prodigy. At the age of uh, five, she performed with the Rockford Symphony Orchestra in Illinois. And that was the beginning of a indoctrination, if you will, and from her mother, who was also a violinist. And it turned out that her natural talents, inherited to some extent from her mother, began to flower, and she enjoyed 
doing what she did. And she became, at the age of uh, 15, a, a student at Juilliard in New York under two of the greatest violin teachers of our time. So that was the beginning of Helen's commitment to the violin and to classical music. And that commitment remained with her throughout her life and uh, became uh, a father, if you will, for all of her relationships, all her charitable work, all her happiness, and uh, all her tragedies. Tell me about your personal history and your relationship to some leading families in India. Well, I was fortunate, uh, Jay, to be born into the most prominent family at the time when the British were still occupying India. And that family was the Nehru family, N-E-H-R-U. And Jawaharlal Nehru was my mother's older brother and became the first prime minister of independent India. And he and Mahatma Gandhi together were considered the two people who were most responsible for forcing the British to leave India and for India to become a free and independent nation. So not only was he uh, an important part of our family, the most important part, but he was followed by his daughter Indira Gandhi, who also became Prime Minister of India, and Indira Gandhi was followed by Rajiv Gandhi, who also became Prime Minister of India. And I was fortunate enough to be uh, growing up at the time of uh, Jawaharlal Nehru and maintaining a close personal relationship with Indira Gandhi and even a closer personal relationship with Rajiv Gandhi, all three of whom are considered part of what is now called the Nehru-Gandhi dynasty. Fascinating. And your life became intertwined with Helen Armstrong, who was a great violinist and in some circles considered one of the most outstanding violinists and musicians of her time. You've also described her as a phenomenon of nature. How does that fit into her profile? How would you describe that? Well, it's interesting. That particular description of her came up for the first time during her memorial service after she had passed away. And a well-known musician who was speaking at the service, he said, and let me quote what he said, she lived like a phenomenon of nature, like a great geezer pouring out all it had to give until its structure gave way and could not sustain itself. Helen had no idea what a huge force she was in her life, in, 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 in the life of others, and she continued throughout her life to give and give and give. So the, that's the end of the quote. And the fact that she was described as a phenomenon of nature so fit everything that eventually became an important part of my book that I felt it was a fitting description to put on the cover of the book. Beautiful picture, beautiful photo. Are there any words that would describe the other passions in her life besides music? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, in fact, it was partly out of amusement, but perhaps a little more seriously, too, that I, as her husband, always felt that there were three loves 
in Helen Armstrong's life, the first and the most important one was classical music. The second and important one was her beloved violin, which was a, a, 19, a 1760 Guadini, a, a very famous instrument. And the third and last one was her husband. That's me. And I used to joke and say, I'm number three in this priority list. And she would always flash a very beautiful smile and never deny it, but always make me feel very comfortable being number three. That's that's beautiful. There are things that she did that impacted the community. What were those particular endeavors that focused on community and, and uh, made an impact? Well, uh, Helen had the misfortune of, uh, in her first marriage, of uh, being married to a, a wonderful man who uh, very soon after giving birth to her first two children became um, very sick with a tumor uh, and slowly proceeded to to become a quadriplegic and, and to die. And as a result of that death, uh, Helen was not able, and it took 11 years for him to die, which completely uh, interfered with her international performing career with two young children and a dying husband. And she, after his death, was wondering how she could resume her career when she met uh, the very famous Avery Fisher of Avery Fisher Hall at Lincoln Center. Yes. And Avery Fisher persuaded her to start her own uh, nonprofit organization, which was called Armstrong Chamber Concerts. And Armstrong Chamber Concerts for 25 years uh, under the banner of a charitable organization, undertook to educate children in classical music. And 16 schools in Connecticut and some, some in New York and Harlem participated in her educational programs. And she would finance these educational programs partly out of her pocket, which became more and more meager. She financed this partly out of her own pocket, which became increasingly meager. And uh, beyond that, she started performing concerts in private homes at the time that she and I met each other. And so we raised quite a lot of money through these private performances and plowed, out, plowed in all the money we raised back into uh, the music education program. And then I became a major part of financing, uh, making charitable contributions to the education program which I still continue to do after her death. In telling your story, who do you think is going to find this on a compelling read? What is your target market for this particular book? Well, the target market is uh, it's, it's so universal. The theme of love is so uh, widely spread in so many different ways. And love stories, uh, each love story is unique. Uh, which makes it also a good read for people who have read other love stories. So uh, I think the target is a very wide target. Uh, anybody who enjoyed reading uh, The Bridges of Madison County, which is now also a musical on Broadway, would find uh, this book very much in, in that sort of genre. 
but it is unique, like all love stories are. In your time with Helen, was there a single event or maybe a couple of events that stand out in your mind as really being a spectacular underscore or understatement of her contribution? Oh, that's a very difficult question. She was uh, contributing, working eight, ten hours a day on weekends. She never stopped uh, uh, performing music uh, and educating children. And I think that uh, it was just a very uh, uh, inspiring thing for me to watch uh, all the time. And I'm not sure I can pick a single occasion out except the time when she actually died. Right. And she died in the middle of a, a, a huge concert. When I say huge, it was really in a private home, but a beautiful, large private home, and she was performing. Uh, and that was perhaps the most dramatic moment uh, in my experience, uh, in my relationship with Helen, with her death. It was so dramatic, and the, 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 the audience of 120 people there for an evening of enjoyment of music and dinner and cocktails. She performed her exit in a very dramatic way. And unfortunately, the evening came to a premature uh, end. But that was perhaps the most uh, important moment, in some ways, in her life as well as mine. In reading the book, readers will take away a message. What is the message you want to underscore and want them to learn from this book? Well, the message that uh, I think people don't pay enough attention to, and when I spoke at Helen's memorial service, I turned to the audience and I said to them, you know, if there's one thing you should do while you're still alive is make sure that you let the people you love know that you love them. Very few people are that expressive and and that liberal with their emotions, particularly men. And I urge the audience, as I urge everybody now and in my book, don't hesitate to say I love you. Because you never know when um, it might be too late. Yes. And then you regret it for the rest of your life if you're the one who survived. Yes, I understand that. I understand that sentiment. I have just visited with a friend of mine whose husband is in very serious condition, and uh, he was uh, also a music gentleman who's made a big impact on the world, and yet he's in serious condition right now. Is there a legacy that? Helen has left that you feel will live on and on beyond maybe time that we can surmise? Yes, I think her legacy, and which is one reason why I wrote the book, uh, and one reason why her friends and musicians felt that uh, I had to make it into a book, and that was that she was so unassuming and so uh, relatively unheralded during her lifetime, that I felt uh, readers should know, her family should know, the next generation should know, that she left a bounty of uh, a legacy in the form of her three loves, uh, the scintillating music performances that she performed during her lifetime, the 125,000 children 
who participated in her education programs, the great violin which she left behind, in fact, which she clasped to her chest the day she died. And that violin now lives in the hands and is owned by another great violinist and teacher, whose name is Aaron Roseanne. And lastly, her legacy is the generosity of spirit towards all of the people who touched her life. In a sort of nutshell, nutshell I would say, that Helen left behind permanent footprints on the sands of time. Beautiful legacy. And I know there had to have been some serious challenges in writing this book. Is there anything beyond telling the story that you want to share with our listeners? The serious challenge was the intense uh, grief that I suffered for many, many years. In fact, to a great extent, I continue to suffer that grief. And it made it very difficult to write a book. And this, this is why initially, as I mentioned, it wasn't going to be a book. Uh, it, the, the depth of emotion was such that it kept me awake at nights and it kept me working uh, during the night and made me, very una- made me unable to do almost anything during the day. Of course, that happens to a lot of people when they lose a loved one. And it was really, she died eight years ago. And one might well ask, why did it take eight years to complete a a book of 116 pages? And the answer was, it was so difficult to write, and so difficult to, to allow it to be in the public domain, that I eventually sort of succumbed to the pressure of friends and family. I think that difficulty continued uh, for three to five years. That, I think, was the most difficult thing for me. Ajit, thank you for sharing your story and sharing the story of Helen. The title of the book, again, is The Shadow of Her Smile, and it's a love story. Our author, Ajit Hatising. Ajit, where do we get copies of your book? Well, we have a website uh, called uh, The Shadow of a Smile, Dot com. You also have access to the website of AuthorHouse.com, uh, uh, who is the publisher. And, of course, you have Amazon and you have uh, uh, other book ser- uh, services where you can order the book from. So I hope people who love will love the book. A great love story and a great story just in general. Thank you for taking the time not only to visit with me, but also sharing your life with others. Thank you, Jay, very much. Thank you again. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker.